of socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally. Welcome, you crazy diamond, to episode 69 of You Don't Have to Yell. I'll pause a moment so all the middle schoolers can have a chuckle over that. Now, one of the things that's been the most fun about doing this podcast in 2020 has been being accused of being a Russian troll bot looking to sow discord in an election year. And with that election out of the way, I'm free to have whoever I want on this show. And the next guest was tops on my list. Now, the Wisconsin Green Party has been blamed for helping tip the 2016 election in Donald Trump's favor by siphoning votes away from Hillary Clinton for their candidate, Jill Stein. And for this episode, I talked with Barbara Dahlgren, outgoing co-chair of the Green Party and lifelong member, to get her take on this and also discuss some of the issues that don't get talked about as a result of our focus on how minor parties impact the candidates of the two major parties rather than the platforms of the minor parties. I will be back at the end with some final thoughts. Until then, enjoy. Barbara, first question for you. Are you from Chicago originally? Because I, I dialed an Illinois area code to get you. Yeah, I'm a little bit from all over the place. I spent the first couple of years of my life on the East Coast, and then I was in Iowa for a few years. But most of where I grew up in was the west side of Chicago in Berwyn, Illinois. And then I've been, I was transplanted to Wisconsin in uh, 2010. So I've been here ever since. Nice, nice. Now, where in Wisconsin? I live in West Dallas, which is um, on the west side of Milwaukee, but it is its own distinct city. It's very working class. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a pretty high immigrant population around here. I'm even two blocks from the train line, and that's I was two blocks from the train line <laughs> when got I was in. So you've rebuilt your old habitat right in Wisconsin. Pretty um, much. <laughs> when did you get involved? Uh, with the Green Party then? Uh, I got a lot of small doses growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike most Greens, I actually grew up in the politics. My mm-hmm. mom was uh, a radio professional. And um, so she did a lot of freelance work when we were in Chicago, mm-hmm. covering protests and all kinds of stuff. And um she really lost faith in the democratic party when I was still a child and moved into thinking about green politics. So I was exposed to the green party before I turned 18. And then even though I wasn't sure I believed in it myself as a political way forward, I ended up um, doing a lot of volunteer work as a pretty young adult Mm -hmm. and, um, really learning a lot about how corrupt the system is and how working outside the system is really a great way to combat that. Got it. What, what made her lose faith in the democratic party? Uh, well in 2000, um, which is really 
when a lot of Greens joined the party was um, when the first national Green candidate uh, really was big into the press. Obviously, everybody knows about Ralph Nader. Yep. Um, so she had known about Ralph Nader beforehand and really liked his platform. And she had been a Bill Bradley fan in 2000, and he dropped out even before the vote was counted, much like, you know, Bernie Sanders did this yeah. time. And, and so many other Democrats have throughout um, really the last probably 30 years or so. I was looking back into all of the different, um, both Democratic and Republican primary races, and very few candidates actually make it to um, to their convention, which is crazy to me because all of our candidates pretty much make it to our conventions. If you're willing to run for an office, um, I mean, and, and people are supporting you, uh, it's, it's a disservice to them to just drop out midway just because you might get some fun deal, fun deal or something from mm -hmm. a different candidate. So, um, We've seen that a lot in the Democratic and Republican parties where people drop out early. And so her favorite candidate dropped out early. And in addition, she really appreciated what Ralph Nader has done through the years. And so she started supporting him and, and was learning more about the Green Party in 2000, which is when a lot of people joined. Mm. That's super interesting to me because... In an earlier episode, a couple weeks back, uh, with a guy named Steve Cox, we were we were talking about why it was that the Republicans got a Trump before the Democrats did. And the interesting thing he said to me was because the Republican Party or the the nomination process of the Republican Party is more democratic, and and it's interesting. I think the Republicans are maybe uh, structurally democratic, but culturally inclined to align behind a winner earlier. And I think the Democrats are exactly the reverse, where they are culturally probably more democratic, but structurally very undemocratic. Uh, and I think that that has led to a lot of, a lot of disillusionment, um, specifically on the left. Um, you mentioned too the the Green Party's structure is exceptionally democratic from from what I understand. Can can you talk about that a bit? That's true. Um, it actually looks um, out, outlandishly democratic to <laughs> outsiders because we literally give everybody their time to speak, which means that a lot of people who aren't used to speaking or used to having a platform do get their time to speak. And that means people who never would be on camera in the two parties or never would get their time because they mm -hmm. sound um, crazy to most people. Mm -hmm. And um, in a real democracy, no matter who it is, no matter what their ability level, their, um, their circumstances in life, their beliefs, everybody gets their time. So we have people who are... Um, Maybe one of their big issues is UFOs and um, certain conspiracy theories. They still get their time too, um, and and so sometimes it makes us look a, a bit disorganized because mm -hmm. of that. Um, we also don't have really high um, 
gatekeeping to get people off of debate stages within the party. In the last presidential debate that we had at our 2019 convention, the candidates who were on stage didn't really have to do a whole lot to get there. And so we had people who maybe weren't as serious of presidential candidates as they, as, um, you know, the people who ended up running the whole race were, and they still got their say. They got to be on stage. Um, They had some critical things to say about the green party and the way that it's structured, which is fine. Um, Mm -hmm. We all have to work towards making a situation that, that does work for all of us. You know, I'm thinking about the the whole presidential debate. Is there any sort of vetting before somebody gets before somebody's allowed to be a candidate in the party, or is it just anyone who wants to declare their intention to run for president out of the Green Party gets a mm-hmm. gets a spot on the stage? Um, for the spot on the stage last year, I think it was like 50 signatures to get on the stage from okay. party members. So pretty low qualifications for that. Mm -hmm. For presidential vetting overall, because that was very early on in the process, people may not even have declared yet. Um, But later on in the process, the way that um, green candidates were declared, um, you know, green presidential candidates and could run in our primary was that they had to get, I think it was 100 green signatures, uh, meaning green party members signed for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they had to raise at least $5,000 or a certain number of individual donations, even if it didn't add up to $5,000. And they had to have a website and they had to fill out the Green Party questionnaire. Mm -hmm. Um, So pretty low requirements still for a presidential candidate. But you know, we want to make sure that if we're going to have a national candidate like that, that they can actually run a 50 state race. Um, Otherwise, if we don't have that kind of a campaign, it really can't further the party. And um, uh, that's really one of the main goals of any kind of candidate is being able to represent us appropriately so that people can actually vote for them and um, people can actually support this person. Yeah, because I, I think the, you know, as I'm thinking about this, you know, I, I understand the ethos where you want to give everybody a voice. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that there is a true meritocracy of ideas. And you can't do that with a structure that suppresses people's voice. You know, at the same time, I could also see that getting very confusing in a mm-hmm. sense because you have all these choices. And obviously, I mean, no offense to the UFO candidate, but a platform on UFOs would probably not be one the entire Green Party would align behind. Mm -hmm. So is there a debate as to whether the qualification or whether the bar is high enough in the Green Party or or no? Oh, absolutely. There are definitely some people who think it should be higher. Um, There are plenty of people who think that we should have no bar or that it should be much lower than it is. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a whole group of people who I've kind of called sour grapes candidates who Mm -hmm. um, didn't end up making it over that bar and have spent the entire year just saying that the Green Party is just as bad as the Democratic Party uh, for having any bar at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And... um, 
I think that if you want to be a serious national candidate, you have to show that you are with the Green Party, first of all, um, because honestly, we've had this problem in the past where Ralph Nader never became a party member. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he just kind of ditched the party and did his own thing afterwards, mm-hmm. which I mean, is perfectly within his right. But since he didn't really have any loyalty to the party, um he ran against us in 2004 and 2008 and kind of set us back because our membership was confused about whether he was the candidate or we had a different candidate. And, um, and he didn't do so well either as, as an independent on his own. So it's kind of like the whole um, problem with that meme left unity that we never have enough unity. Yeah. Um, And so we're really trying to work on that by having some, uh, loyalty to each other and the party. Um, I think that the loyalty is a really underrated thing for the whole left, including our party, um, that a lot of people just think, oh, it should be about the ideas. Well, if there's absolutely no loyalty whatsoever to your fellow party members, where are we going to end up? We have to trust each other and trust that we're trying to do the best for each other. Yeah, I think generally, if you if you look at the way, you know, conservative minds versus liberal minds think, um, you know, the response to change on the conservative side is always to proceed with caution. Mm-hmm. You know, so in the face of I mean, right now, 2020, we are going through a phenomenal amount of economic and, and social change. Uh, and the conservative approach is always to kind of like, let's hold tight and let's look at this. Um, and whereas, uh, on, on, uh, the more liberal, the left side, uh, there's a sense to explore alternatives to what the status quo is. And, and I think as a result, it's always going to result in a little less unity on the left because there's only one way that we've always done things, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but there are a million different ways to do something different. And, and, and I think generally that kind of, that can create the perception of, uh, of dissonance when the there's agreement on the problem, I think, and it's just the solution that's kind of um, up for grabs. Um, you know, it's interesting too. You bring up this. You bring up Ralph Nader. Um, one of the things I've seen with minor parties is there's also a vulnerability to people kind of hijacking it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's ever happened with the Green Party. I know with the with the Reform Party back in 2000, I had the uh, chair on as a guest a couple uh, months ago, and he was saying how Pat Buchanan came in as a candidate and effectively did it just to dump all his campaign debt on the Reform Party. Has that that it doesn't seem like that's happened with the Green Party yet, though? Correct. As far as I know, nobody has dumped a whole bunch of debt on the Green Party. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we do get some strong personalities who come in. A lot of Greens think that we really should be seeking out these personalities more. Um, some people were really excited when Roseanne Barr joined us in 20, was it 2012 or 2016? I think, I think 2012 um, mm-hmm. and tried to be the presidential candidate. Um, there were some people who really wanted Jesse Ventura to be our candidate this year. But Jesse Ventura wasn't actually running a campaign. So it was um, a little bit of 
um, it, it was just not going to happen if he wasn't going to actually run a campaign. Uh, that's really the the lowest bar that you could possibly set for a candidate <laughs> that they yeah. want to run for the office and and do the work to 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 run. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I would say I would say like if you're going to be the candidate for president, the minimal commitment should be running for president. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess like so we t- you know we talked a lot about the structure. We've talked a lot about maybe the ideas that don't make it. You mm-hmm. know, um, when you talk to folks in Wisconsin, you know, what aspects of the Green Party's platform really resonate the most with folks there? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it kind of depends on the community I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Um, this is mostly a very conservative state. Mm-hmm. So if I'm in like the western suburbs out here or over in um, like northern Wisconsin, where it's very, the Trump flags are huge up there. They're mm-hmm. Um, they're monumental, um, but people still have a lot of really important issues that the Greens talk about, like mm-hmm. jobs and healthcare. These kitchen table issues that are always talked about as important in the Democratic and Republican parties, but that they are completely unable to do anything for people. Um, so a lot of those economic issues are really important to our more uh, rural people. Um, when we explain the Green New Deal to people who have been watching or listening to Limbaugh for many years, mm-hmm. a lot of them are like, oh, really? That's what the Green New Deal is? Yeah. Um, and actually identify with that a lot because Republicans and conservatives in general, they they like to have the government get involved in jobs programs. Over in Milwaukee, where a lot of people are are really more liberal. A lot more of our social policies and social rhetoric um, really identify with that group of people mm-hmm. that we are also um, supportive of LGBT people and LGBT issues that um, we have a, an intersectional view of how politics work so that um we think about environmental racism as a concept that the poorest people are usually also people of color and usually in food deserts and um, the most polluted sections of town, meaning that they're probably going to be subject to the worst of um, environmental pollution and um, nutritional deficiencies and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, some of our environmental policy is really popular with um, people in Milwaukee, um, especially because we're part of movements like Get the Let Out, where it's it's very much an intersectional group of people who are concerned about environmental issues and people who are concerned about uh, social justice. Could you talk about Get the Let Out a bit? Because I think a lot of folks listening don't understand some of the environmental issues that are really specific to the industrial Midwest. Really the main guy who, um, who started this group, who is like one of the biggest voices of it is Robert Miranda, much like Flint and other um, cities, Washington, DC has the same problem. Um, we all have lead pipes in our old houses and um, in our old streets. 
And a lot of laws were passed to make sure that lead was the only material that should be used to make water pipes. Then the reason that was, was because the guy who was the mayor in Milwaukee and then later became the governor in the late 1800s was at least partial owner of, of uh, Wisconsin's lead mine. <laughs> okay. And we have water mains that break from freezing. We have all of these different issues that um, have an effect on these pipes. The lead gets in the water. People are drinking that water. And all of a sudden, we have a bunch of poisoned kids. It's the reason that Milwaukee has sued the lead paint industry and has lead paint remediation. The powers that be say it's too expensive. But, I mean, they don't think that it's too expensive to pay for upgrades on banks and uh, stadiums. And they don't, they don't think it's too expensive um, to put money in other places and, and lend it out to corporations. It should definitely not be too expensive to make sure that every child is safe. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's funny, you, you say that, and, and there was something you mentioned earlier about, you know, Trump's appeal in, uh, in northern and rural Wisconsin. And the, the interesting thing is, so I went to school in the Chicago area, went to school with a lot of kids from Wisconsin, a lot of folks from Michigan. Um, and when I saw Trump's campaign and I first heard Donald Trump speak, I thought to myself, this guy is campaigning for the Midwest. Because the things he was saying, there's this, you know, there's the standard Republican tropes, uh, you know, low taxes, low regulation, uh, Christian ideology, all that stuff, you know, that's going to get you this, this, the, you know, the standard red states. But the stuff he was saying about trade, um, specifically, I, I felt was speaking to the Midwest. And, and I really feel like when I look at a state like Wisconsin, um, I really feel like on the whole, there's a large group of people who just feel entirely left behind, um, mm -hmm. whether it's because of our trade policies um, or whether it's because of our you know, because of the the general state of environmental issues there. Would you agree with that statement? Oh, absolutely. The Midwest has long been called like flyover states. The media is on the coasts and not so much in the center of the country. So a lot of the issues that get presented are on the coasts. Um, and the Midwest is is a bit unique. We have some very harsh winters. We have tornadoes when you get um, lower in, in the Midwest. We have these issues that really don't occur in some of the other places in the country. And we're also much of the breadbasket of America. Um, in Wisconsin, milk and milk dumping has been a huge issue because we overproduce milk. Um, there's not as much market for it. During the pandemic, it has been um, the supply chains have all been completely messed up over here for many different kinds of farmers, not just dairy farmers. And the farmers need a, a market to sell their milk and there isn't one or there is less of one. And then they can't really transport it in some cases or maybe they have to transport it um, very far away. It's just not 
sustainable. Um, and most of farming just isn't sustainable. And it's meant to not be sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's uh, all subsidized um, certain industries. The government just kind of picks and chooses industries that it wants to support. Yeah. And everybody else is on their own. So um, free market capitalism, people absolutely hate it because the government is picking and choosing winners. People mm-hmm. who are um, more socialist leaning absolutely hate it because it's socialism for the wealthiest of us and it's monocultural. And um, what I mean by that is it, it really favors people who are the most detrimental to the environment with their um, huge swaths of corn and and beef farms and and not very much organic small farms and um, cooperative industries as well. We are going to take a short break and we'll be back in a moment with Barbara Dahlgren. Hey there. I hope you're enjoying this episode and wanted to take a short break to remind you why we're here and how you can help. Now, the goal of YDHTY is to eliminate the two-party duopoly by 2029 by implementing electoral reform that will open the doors for minor party participation. And this is your call to join the movement. You can help by joining YDHTY's email list on YDHTY.com, just like the first letters in You Don't Have to Yell, or following You Don't Have to Yell on social media to help get the word out. You can also share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested or leave a review letting everyone know how much you enjoyed it. Now, lastly, there are numerous organizations around the country looking to promote electoral reform. And with some Googling, you can find them. Now, real change doesn't happen without boots on the ground. And you'd be surprised on the impact you can have. So I'd strongly encourage you to get out there and participate. The bottom line is now is the time to get organized. This election has proven we can only choose the lesser of two evils so many times before it becomes a constitutional crisis. And we just can't wait until the next one to take action. And now, back to the episode. You know, one thing I want to highlight to folks, too, is that, the you know, the reason we have diseases like heart disease and diabetes that are so prevalent in this country is because the federal government dumps an inordinate amount of money into making sure that the foods that get us sick are the ones that are grown. And it's not necessarily, the goal isn't to get people sick, but the goal is to uh, keep these farms afloat that are growing things like corn, beef, um, Mm -hmm. You know, thing dairy things that are that have proven to be harmful to our health if 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 overconsumed. So, you know, it's funny too, kind of getting into the conversation of a, a region being ignored or, or or a region feeling unheard, because when you look at the 2016 election, you know, the Green Party, especially in Wisconsin, took a lot of heat for quote unquote spoiling the election or quote unquote robbing votes from Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, Hillary lost like that was not, (laughs) you know, that was not a fluke. Like in my mind, the, the, the democratic party uh, lost due to the fact, number one, Hillary never went there, which 
first and foremost should be uh, should be uh, acknowledged. But I think number two, you know, when you look at the Democrats' traditional voter base uh, in the Midwest, which were union folks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anybody can argue Democratic policy really favored the Midwestern working class, uh, despite the lip service. Am I being too harsh here, Barbara, or, or no? Am I? Oh, I I don't think you could be more you could be harsh enough about Hillary Clinton and her campaign. It's just it's amazing to me how much finger pointing the Democratic Party is capable of mm-hmm. when it puts up these people that they know are incredibly unpopular. Um, Hillary Clinton was one of the least popular candidates in all of presidential history as far as the polls have have marked um, in the last 50 years, the other one being Donald Trump. (laughs) And I mean, if the Democrats are pretty much solely going to run a campaign on that, they're not as bad as Donald Trump and the Republicans who are outright fascists and um, the worst kind of people that they all should be wearing Hitler mustaches and like, and run on that alone as their campaign. How can they not turn inward when they see how close they are in the polls (laughs) to the Republicans who they say are the worst kind of people? Green party took, took a lot of blame for, for 2016. Before our conversation, I actually went and took a look just to see kind of what the green party results were going back. 2008, Wisconsin got 0.1% of the vote. 2012, that doubled to 0.2. And then in 2016, it went all the way up to 1%. So it was like a five-time gain. And and now this year, you weren't on the ballot, which I want to talk about in a bit. But if you compare that to the libertarian vote, they saw this in in Wisconsin again. They kind of saw the same arc, which is the vote doubled between 2008 and, and 2012. Uh, quintupled between 2012 and 2016. Interestingly enough, 2020, the vote count doubled uh, from 2012, I should say, but was was roughly about a third of what they did in 2016. So, you know, I think your argument about both candidates being wholly unpopular is shown in the data. Um, now, in, in 2020, uh, Wisconsin didn't have a candidate on the ballot, at least on the presidential on the presidential level in Wisconsin, and can you talk a little bit about that? Like, was was the Green Party more or less blocked out, or was it just kind of a a, a failure to get the or the or a failure to kind of meet the requirements? Oh, the Green Party was absolutely blocked out. It was completely un, undemocratic. We did everything the the elections commission told us to do, mm-hmm. and still. Because they're bipartisan, they voted three to three Democrats to Republicans to not allow us onto the ballot anyway, um, without any evidence showing that any of our um, signatures were invalid and without showing that anything was actually wrong with our paperwork. Um, And so they, they just kind of agreed that if we wanted to have ballot access, we would have to go to the Supreme Court which we did. And then we got a whole lot of heat for that. Um, Excuse us for trying to get our rightful place on the ballot after um, petitioning our butts off all of July when we had to petition for ballot access. We got 
more than double the number of signatures that we needed. Um, That's during a pandemic too. During the pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to note. I got over 500 of those myself. And so I I wasn't aware of this. So you actually, the Green Party actually met the legal requirements, but was still prohibited from the ballot, ballot, was just voted off. Yes. We had an issue with our paperwork that everybody knew about that was um, irregular to most petitions. And that's because our vice presidential candidate moved from one end of Florence, South Carolina to the other end of Florence, South Carolina during petitioning. We immediately reached out to the Elections Commission and asked them, what do we do when we have two different addresses for a candidate? It's not illegal to move. So obviously our petitions Mm -hmm. before her move should be valid. Our petitions after her move um, need to have some way to be valid with a different address. So we asked them what was the appropriate way to go with that. They gave us a list of instructions. We followed that to the letter. So they already knew that we had this irregularity in our paperwork where the vice presidential candidate had two different addresses, depending on which petition sheets you looked at um, throughout the month. We were challenged by a Democrat. Um, Surprise, surprise. (laughs) And the lawyer said, um, the, the case that they made was that the first address was simply just wrong, but they didn't prove that it was wrong. They didn't prove that she didn't live there or anything like that. They just wanted to make the case that it was wrong. The elections commission told us on Friday that we were challenged and said we had by Monday at like four o'clock or something to, um, prepare our statement and any evidence that we wanted to present. And they told um, our green representative at the hearing, you can't present any evidence. You can only restate your case. (laughs) The Republicans on the elections committee, they really went to bat for us. Mm -hmm. And that it probably was a partisan issue for them. Oh, yeah. Um, But it also was um, an issue having to do with future elections decisions. I don't, I really legitimately think that they didn't want to make ballot access harder for future candidates, which this ruling absolutely did, that now they can just kind of take any, um, they don't have to take the petitioner's evidence at face value, that any challenge is met with a higher regard than the actual petitions that are turned in because of this result. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's a lot, a lot of unintended consequences right there, mm-hmm. and 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 I think the thing, you know, the thing I want to I, I want to highlight here because one of the things I highlight a lot on this podcast is the fact that the two major parties have done a lot to insulate themselves from competition, mm-hmm. and that in doing so, what they do is they create a lot of the resentment and they create a lot of the conditions that result in nominating a very unpopular candidate um, that can't win against another very unpopular candidate, you know? So they're not, not serving their own best interests doing this. Um, so you got knocked off the ballot. Was that just for presidents or th- was that just for the president or, or were there, were there other uh, green party candidates running in, in Wisconsin at the time? 
Um, no other Green parties were candidates were running at the time because we have different petitioning periods for different sets of candidates. We have at least one election every year here, which is a lot of elections. Mm-hmm. And this year we had uh, four elections. I understand that a lot of the people I talk to when I'm petitioning for various offices they really don't understand what's going on or why they're all of a sudden hearing about candidates, um, specifically presidential candidates in mid July. Um, a lot of people would tell me, isn't it too late to start a presidential campaign? And Mm -hmm. it's because they've never heard of our candidates through the media, even though they've been running for a year and a half at that point. And, um, they don't know about the, the whole, issue with ballot access that people have to get on the ballot in order to actually be voted for, um, or at least have a write-in status, which is also a very confusing process um, in itself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, I, I think that's one, one thing about the minor parties that, and, and the way the media portrays them, um, that does them a disservice because generally when you hear of the green party in uh, in the, in any national media outlet, it's always in respect to how it might impact the chances of a major party and never on the virtues of its own platform. And most of it actually occurs after the election in some cases where the network didn't even mention our candidates, didn't mention any third party candidates until after the election when they're doing their post-election analysis on who spoiled it. Um, yeah. so it's, it's really difficult to um, to run a campaign when the major networks hardly ever or never mention your candidates' names at all. Yeah. And, and one thing I want to communicate to the, to the folks listening too, and this is something you and I talked about before I hit record, but you know, everybody listening, like, keep in mind the issues, the quote unquote issues that we talk about when we talk about politics are entirely dictated by both major parties. So there is not an issue that is debated in politics that is not either a priority for the Republicans or the Democrats. And if it falls outside of their priority, it doesn't get discussed. Um, so a great issue, and again, kind of getting back to 2016, great issue was trade policy. Everybody took trade policy for granted at the expense of a lot of folks in Wisconsin, a lot of folks in other parts of the country. And the reason we took it for granted is because neither party cared. It was good for their donor base. So they could just keep their mouths shut and let things keep going. And it was only when Donald Trump got elected that people all of a sudden became really concerned with the plight of uh, working class voters in the Midwest. One of the major issues that both the Greens and the Libertarians are always talking about is our endless wars. Um, These wars are extremely unpopular with the American people. A lot of family members are just, you know, missing out on their families because there are these endless wars going on. And they just continue and continue, and neither party has to talk about them because both parties are pro-war at this point. Um, we had an incident this last year with our um, with Gwen Moore, our Milwaukee 
congressional, um, U.S. congressional um, congresswoman, Gwen Moore said that she was going to uh, vote against the last um, national defense authorization. That was the one with Space Force in it with uh, $750 billion (laughs) in it. She said that she was going to vote against it. Mm -hmm. And she said she voted against it. But if you looked up in her congressional record, she voted for it. And then she tried to backpedal saying that she voted against um, one of one of the things that went into it. Gwen Moore has been in Congress a while. She's not a freshman congresswoman. She knows exactly what she did. Yeah. And she just lied to the anti-war base up here because she she's the only game in town. Um, and a lot of greens, I've been trying to get somebody to run against her because she's just been so pro-war. And, um, after her vote, there was, there were a couple of anti-war groups that went and took a picture with her. And I said, why are you doing that? You're just, um, allowing her to clean up her record for the next time that she votes for war. Um, these issues are really important to people. People's Mm -hmm. kids are in these wars there are bombs being dropped on people when we could have that money and we could have our people back. And like war is the, the silliest issue that we should have to be against. Everybody should be against war. We shouldn't have to be in the war in the first place. And it's a total waste of money. Um, it's really just a win, win, win to be out of there. And yet it's, overwhelmingly supported by the two parties and they never have to talk about it. And the media never brings it up either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we talk about programs being too expensive, like the green new deal, uh, nobody ever seems to question whether the billions and billions of dollars we're spending to literally destroy a place across the earth to no benefit to us is Mm -hmm. worth the cost. Yeah, a lot of people like to say um, that cutting the military is, uh, quote unquote, cutting defense. Mm -hmm. And I think of it as really bolstering our defense, because we know that these wars are making us less safe, that we're just making enemies around the world that we don't need to make, um, that we are killing ourselves by not promoting our, our social programs and things that actually save lives here mm-hmm. in order to go bomb a country overseas. So we're actually bolstering our defense by cutting it. And I would fully support um, cutting it 75% um, so that we couldn't go to war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say, and, and, you know, another thing I'll throw out there too, you know, given we're talking about the industrial Midwest, you know, one of the things a lot of folks don't realize is that um, one of the ways the uh, defense industry effectively buys influence in Congress is by making sure a lot of these industrial towns are, or by making sure that they are the the biggest employer or one of the key employers in these industrial towns across the country. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot, a a great one is um, Jim Jordan's district in Ohio has the factory that manufactures the M1 Abrams tank, which the military has said they haven't needed since 2013. 
Um, but yet we dump millions and millions and millions of dollars into that project every year. Yeah, the military has really been a big issue in Wisconsin recently because mm-hmm. Madison has um, has a military base and they've decided to go through with this ridiculous contract to um, get a whole bunch of they they want to replace all of their fighter jets with F-35. F-35s? I think it's, it's the F-35. F-35 and I don't even think it works, does it? They're extremely um, expensive paperweights for the most part, as I understand. There was yeah. a whole bunch of F-35s. Um, I think they were in Florida when one of the hurricanes hit a few years ago, and they just couldn't even get them off the ground to to remove them from that situation. So mm-hmm. billions of dollars, I think, were lost just by not being able to move the F-35 planes from one field to another yeah i just i just looked this up uh in 2017 the estimated cost of the of the f-35 programs lifetime so the the estimated cost of the project through its lifetime with it which is estimated to go into 2070 so about you know 50 years um adjusted for inflation is a total of about 2.6 trillion dollars so more than we allocated in stimulus during the pandemic before i hit record you know one of the things you mentioned is you got a great political education or a great education on our political process mm-hmm. when you got involved with the green party what are maybe one or two of the the most important things you learned I guess one thing that I've learned about law and policy and just the way that we choose to run things, we learn in school about all of these different rules and processes that make everything work. But pretty much the way things are run is that depending on who's running them and who you know, that's, that's really how a lot of politics is accomplished. Now, here's the thing I want you all to take away from this episode. The way the major parties deal with minor parties says a lot about their views on democracy and their views on how issues of importance to your average voter should be discussed. Now, the Democratic Party knows enough Americans are concerned about the environment and our military policy to vote green. So rather than incorporate these issues into their platform, they simply game the system to silence them. And this is the reason we have record low voter turnout amongst wealthy democracies and have that resentment that created anti-establishment candidates such as Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. The fact is, when people are ignored, when the issues that are important to them get suppressed, they're going to get angry. And it isn't going to stop unless we make the system more responsive to the will of the people. Now, one last note. If you're interested in learning more about American military policy, all of November 2019's episodes of YDHTY cover the subject in detail, so be sure to check them out. As always, music, courtesy of QuellerTech, YDHTY's editorial advisor is Adam Yaffe, 
YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally asking you to remember there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. And it's lonely down here, so join me at the root, folks. Bye-bye.